0: Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Canterbury Gardens Community Church. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Cameron, and I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at CGCC, Uh, and I'm so privileged to be able to be with you here virtually, uh, to be able to go through uh, John chapter 20 with you all this morning. And as most of you would know, we're nearing the end of this book that we've been in now for almost, well, well over a year now and and i know that it's been a real encouragement and um challenge to many of you and and today we've really reached the most pivotal section of 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 john but really the most pivotal section of the bible as a whole jesus resurrection from the dead and you know we saw a couple of weeks ago that jesus was delivered over to be crucified that god himself was put upon a cross. Despite the fact that he was the only sin- sinless person who has ever existed, he was hung on a cross to die. But you know, something that we also saw throughout this cha- these chapters has been that God has been in complete control of this whole event. It was constantly displayed that Jesus' life was not being taken from him, but that he was submitting submitting himself to the Father's plan in order that he might redeem humanity from their sins, in order that he may pay the price for our sins, for our worship of false gods, himself. But we know as well, don't we, that Jesus' death is not where the story Ends. It's only half the story. You know, the one who called himself the resurrection and the life will rise again. He could never be held by death. And we're going to see that in today's passage. And yet, despite this fact, despite the fact that we know so well that after Jesus' death becomes his resurrection, despite the fact that we can go from chapter 19 to chapter 20 without a second thought, this was not the case for those who followed Jesus in this time. This was not the case for the characters, the people that we're going to read about today. And you know, I often say this, but one thing that can help us as we read the scriptures, is really to put ourselves in the position of the people that we're reading about. To put ourselves in their shoes as best we can to to really see what they were seeing, to, to feel what they may have been feeling. And so wherever you are watching this, as we go through this passage now, I want to encourage you to imagine what it would have been like for these followers of Jesus to try and put yourselves in their position because yes their circumstances are unique and and our circumstances circumstances aren't exactly the same but perhaps you can identify today with how some of these individuals were feeling perhaps you can identify with the way that they were feeling in this time some of the struggles that they were having. And this text really gives us an insight into that, and I think it does it intentionally. And so if we want to see this story afresh today, I encourage you to really really dive into this text and and look at it through those people's perspectives. And I want to also remind you that there will be no text up on the screen today. So I want to encourage you to have your Bibles open. I know it's really easy to get distracted at home, but I want to encourage you to follow along with me in the passage. We're going to do a lot of following of the the characters that are presented to us, so please track along with me in that. And you see, this passage in chapter 20, it begins with these words, which I think very appropriately sum up the situation. It says this, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark And you know I think it sums it up perfectly it was dark physically yes but I think it was also dark spiritually You know these followers of Jesus and his disciples it was it was a new week yet it was still dark The week that had just passed had not occurred like any of them could have imagined or expected These their whole world had been torn apart you see they had walked with jesus for most of his earthly ministry they had seen him interact with various people seen him teach nicodemus about being born again the pharisee who who normally taught other people seen him offer offer living water to a hopeless samaritan woman who had a checkered history seen him offer seen him heal a blind man born from born blind from birth, seen him feed the 5,000 and even raise a dead man who'd been dead for four days. They'd also seen him, so, seen him call himself the bread of life, the good shepherd, the living water, the way, the truth, and the life, the door, the true vine, the resurrection, and the life, and the son of God. And yet, and yet, take this in, their leader, their hope, the one whom they expected to bring in the kingdom was arrested, beaten, and put on a cross. And I I can just imagine that while they were watching this take place, when Jesus was arrested, when he was before the courts, when he was being beaten, perhaps they were holding out some hope. He's going to do something here. He's going to perform some miracle like he's done so many other times before. But he didn't. The time passed and he died. Can you imagine what the disciples, what the followers of Jesus would have been feeling like in these past couple of days? As they woke to this new week in the darkness, what would they have been feeling? I would think they would have a certain hopelessness about them. This was not how it was supposed to go. But this passage is going to show us some amazing transformation that's going to happen. But it's also going to show us the reality of what they were feeling in these times. So why don't we look at this passage um, together. Again, have your Bibles open as we go through this passage. So we see in verse 1 that it starts out with Mary Magdalene. And she goes to the tomb and she sees that the stone is no longer there. The stone is no longer there. And in her alarm, she runs to go and tell Peter. And as the text says, to tell the other disciple as well. Now we know here that this other disciple must have been John, who was the one who wrote this book. Um, we'll, we'll see why later, but there's been other things that have pointed to, to John being that other disciple. And Mary comes to them and she exclaims to them that someone has taken Jesus from the tomb. You know, this reveals to us exactly where Mary's thinking. was. she wasn't thinking that this meant that he had resurrected. She was just thinking that someone had had stolen him. And that was alarming to her. And so Peter and John in verse three, they begin to run towards the tomb together. And I love this. I love verse 4. This is how we know for sure that John wrote this book and that he was the other disciple because I see no other reason for having this verse in this passage other than boasting. Let's just have a look at it. Verse 4 says, The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I just think bragging about his running ability there, Just, I'm surprised that verse got stuck in there, to be honest. Um, But anyways, John gets there first and and looks in and he sees the linen clothes lying there. But he does not go in. He does not go in. And then finally, Peter arrives, seriously questioning his running ability, probably already thinking about the new fitness regime, regime he's going to do so he can beat John next time. But he finally gets there and he stops and looks in too. He stops and looks into this tomb. And I just want to stop here and think about Peter. What would have Peter been feeling in this time? Think about what's just happened to Peter. Think about his final moments with Jesus, that that he was the one who so confidently asserted that he was never going to deny Jesus, that he was willing to die with him. And yet, he Denied him three times. His final moments, his final moment to be triumphant, to be confident, he denied Jesus three times. And we know from other accounts that Jesus looked at him immediately after this. Can you imagine how Peter must have been feeling? That his last look with Jesus was after his own failure and then Jesus died upon a cross. Can you imagine the shame that Peter must have been feeling? The guilt he might have been feeling? The regret? At being humbled in this way. So so we see Peter here, and Peter goes in and looks into the tomb, and then John follows him in verse 9, and it actually says that John went in, he saw, and he believed. And then we get this line about how The disciples themselves were not expecting a resurrection. They did not know that Jesus had to rise from the dead. But John was beginning to believe. And so that's kind of the first character that this text focuses on is Peter. And we we see and we think about what he must have been feeling. But now the text switches to focus on Mary. And we're immediately introduced to the struggles that Mary is having. Now, just to remind you who this Mary is, because if you're like me, I get confused with all the Marys. Uh, I, don't, I don't really ever know which Mary it is. Um, but this one is Mary Magdalene. She was uh, a woman who, as the Bible tells us, Jesus cast out seven demons from her. And so she'd been completely rescued by Jesus, and she'd been an adamant follower of him. And we introduced straight away in verse 11 how she's feeling in this time, that she's grieving. Verse 11 says that she stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she was weeping, she stooped to look into the tomb. We see here a sad picture of a woman who loved Jesus. A sad picture of a woman who had Jesus as her whole life. She had no life apart from him. And you can just imagine that because she'd been saved by Jesus. She'd been healed by him. Jesus was her devotion. And yet here she is grieving and weeping. It's a sad picture of Mary and how she was feeling in this time. However, as she looks, she sees two angels who ask her, why is she weeping? And she cries out that someone has taken her Lord. And you can almost hear the pain in her voice. Someone has taken my Lord. And then we're confronted with this rather interesting scene. And I think it's actually quite humorous that Mary turns around and she thinks that she's looking at the gardener. But it's actually Jesus. He must have had his face hidden or, or perhaps just in her you know, weeping, in her struggle, she couldn't actually recognise him. But Jesus asks her, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And she repeats herself. So she's looking for Jesus. She doesn't know where he is. And you hear the desperation in her voice again that, that this gardener would please tell her where Jesus is. And then... Jesus says her name, Mary. And it's in the saying of her name that she realizes who it is. She says in verse 16, Rabboni. And you can just imagine the excitement in her voice. And you know that by the next verse 17 that she's run up and she's hugged Jesus because he says, do not cling to me. Her grief has changed to joy as she sees her resurrected Saviour. And then Jesus makes this amazing statement to her. Look at verse 17. It's such an incredible thing when we really look at it. Verse 17 says this, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You know, we see here a massive statement from Jesus that highlights the work that he has just done upon the cross and in his resurrection. (laughs) It highlights how amazing that this work is and what it's actually achieved. You see, all throughout John, we've seen Jesus talking about the closeness of his relationship with the Father. That's been one of our major themes, right? It's been all over John. He talks about the intimate love between him and the Father. He talks about how he can do nothing without the Father's say-so, how apart from the Father he can do nothing. There's this constant language about a closeness of a relationship that was a beautiful picture of the Trinity. And then look at what Jesus says here. He actually makes clear that because of what he has done, the closeness of that relationship is now available to all who follow him. My father is your father. My God is your God. What an amazing statement from Jesus here. But notice also here the intimate interaction that Jesus has here with Mary. How in the midst of her grief, she is comforted by the resurrected Saviour. That because of the resurrection, not only Mary, but the disciples have access to a Father who can comfort in the midst of grief. You see, the resurrection has changed everything for Mary. And that really leads us to our first Point. the resurrection changes everything because we have been given access to the father to a God who who can comfort us in the midst of our grief who cares for us and looks after us and loves us in the same way that he loves Jesus this is what Jesus has done by his resurrection he's given us access to to the Father. This is why the resurrection changes everything. And so that's point one, the resurrection changes everything because we're being given access to the Father, to God who can comfort us in our griefs. And so, so the characters that we've seen so far have, have been Peter the denier. We've seen Mary who's been in extreme grief and now the text is going to move on to a new group of people, the disciples. And it doesn't take long for us to learn exactly how the disciples were feeling in this time. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So what were these great disciples whom Jesus had trained and walked with for three years, what were they doing? They were hiding. Their doors were locked and they were afraid. They were in fear because they had just seen what had happened to Jesus and they didn't want that to happen to them. And so can you imagine there's also a fair bit of confusion here with these disciples, right? Because they probably heard from John that that maybe Jesus is risen from the dead, but they've heard from others that, that they're not so sure. And Mary thinks that someone's stolen him and and there was just a whole bunch of different information they would have been having. So there was confusion, there was fear, there was a lot of tension in this room. Here were Jesus' great disciples. But they didn't look too great in this moment. But then, out of nowhere, Jesus appears amongst them in verse 19 and says these words, Peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side and he comforts them. And immediately they're glad and their their fear subsides as they see their resurrected Saviour. Their fear subsides as they see their resurrected Saviour. And then once again, just like with Mary, Jesus makes another massive Statement In verse 21, he says that in the same way that he, the Father, has sent him, so Jesus is sending them. He gives them a purpose. And then verse 22, listen to this. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you hold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So we saw earlier that through Mary, Jesus showed that we have access to God as our Father. And now he reminds the disciples that we are able to receive the Holy Spirit, God's very presence within them. Which again, when you think about John, it's been a massive theme about the coming Holy Spirit and all that that means for the disciples. And then he shows the disciples that they'll actually have a unique authority now we don't have time to go into that verse but it essentially highlights the disciples unique authority in establishing the early church so i want you to see here that in the midst of the disciples fear the reality of the resurrection changes everything for them jesus brings them peace in the midst of their fear and so that that brings us to point Two, The resurrection changes everything because we are able to receive the Holy Spirit, God's very presence within us, who is able to bring peace in the midst of fear and to give us a purpose in life. What an amazing uh, statement from Jesus. What an amazing reality this reveals to us. So there we have it. We've had Peter, the the denier, Mary, who's grieving, and the group of disciples huddled together, afraid. And yet the resurrection changes their lives. And now we move on to our final individual, Thomas. Or as many of us know him, Doubting Thomas. And you know, some people think that Thomas gets it a little bit hard because of this name, that he shouldn't really have been called Doubting Thomas, that, and, and that, he, that it's all just a bit too much. But I actually think that he got off pretty lightly here. Uh, I, I think he shouldn't have been called Doubting Thomas. I think he should have been called Unbelieving Thomas, because you know what? Thomas wasn't doubting here. He wasn't tossing and turning and saying, you know, I believe, but I'm just struggling with a few things. I believe, help my unbelief, like we read in another part of scripture Now, he wasn't doing that. Look at verse 25. It says that he is actually refusing to believe unless he sees it for himself. That's not doubt. That's disbelief, a refusing to believe unless he sees it for himself. But notice that despite this attitude, Jesus appears to Thomas and he shows him the evidence. Just think about that. Pause and think, how gracious that is of Jesus. He didn't have to show up to Thomas. Thomas had an attitude of unbelief, yet Jesus goes into the midst of that unbelief and shows him the evidence. He gives him assurance. And once Thomas sees this, once he gets this assurance, he, he says in verse 27 that this is Lord and God. He, he confesses Jesus to be God. It's an amazing thing. And of course, Jesus encouraged him not to disbelieve, but believe. And some of your versions may say doubt, but I want to stress this word really does in the Greek. It means disbelieve, not doubt. It means that he was refusing to believe and Jesus encouraged him, encouraging him to not continue in his unbelief, but believe. And then once again, Jesus makes a big theological statement, like he's done with the other interactions. He says in verse 29, that blessed are those who see, who believe without seeing. Showing that for generations to come, that Christians wouldn't see Jesus in the flesh, but they would believe in him, and they would be blessed. So I want you to see here that the resurrection changes everything For Thomas. And that brings us to our third point. The resurrection changes everything because through it, Jesus confronts our unbelief and offers us assurance. You know, what an amazing insight this passage gives us to the reality of these people and their hurt. A denier, a griever, a group of fearful men. And a man who refuses to believe. And yet, when they are confronted with the resurrected Jesus, it changes everything. Jesus comes to each of them in a different way, knowing what they need. And it changes everything. He proclaims some amazing truths to each of them. Access to a Father who comforts. Peace through the Holy Spirit within us. And assurance in the midst of unbelief. The resurrection changes everything. And all of this leads us into verses 30 and 31. The purpose statement of John. Something that I know we'd all be so familiar with. And so church, I want us to say this together now. We should all know it off by heart. So reading from verse 30, here's what it says. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we should ask ourselves then, why do these verses appear here? Why did John choose to put them here after all that we've just read? And ultimately, how does what we've just read help us to believe and to have life in his name? Well, let's deal with the first part as we finish first. How does this, what we've read, help us to believe? Well, I mean, I hope that's been really clear. You know, if you're a sceptic, this, pa- this passage invites you in to see something very clearly. Do you know what it shows us? It shows us how human and weak Jesus' followers were. You see, we have a man who, whose last act was to deny Jesus three times, a woman who's in grief and pain, a group of scared disciples, and a man who refuses to believe. And yet, these individuals are the very ones who go on to carry the gospel and build the early church to become what it is today, the largest religion in all of history, who has three billion followers, who, who has shaped human history, and Jesus is known everywhere in the world. And it all started with these individuals, these fearful, grieving unbelieving people. How? Why? Because the resurrection really happened. Because the resurrection changes everything. You see, nothing could have turned these people's lives around. Nothing could have enabled them to become God's um, message bearers to the world unless Jesus had really risen from the dead. Unless Jesus really did confront them in the flesh. Unless these stories are really true. This is not a fabricated story. And if you're someone who's watching this video, who's a skeptic, you've never actually come to really be convinced about Jesus in reality, I want to encourage you to look at this passage. This is not a fabricated story. And to suggest it is, it's really quite foolish because, you see, these people were not a group of people who were going to gather together and fabricate this story. No, their whole lives were were in and were, were upon Jesus, and he died. And their whole world was shattered. The only thing that was going to reconstruct that world and enable them to, to preach the gospel was to see Jesus again, to see him in the flesh. This is a is a true story. And so if you're watching this and you've never have come to believe in Jesus, I want to encourage you to explore that. I want to encourage you to to look again at the resurrection. I want to encourage you to know that Jesus really did die on a cross and he really did die on a cross for you. He really did do that because of our sin, because of our rebellion, he died on a cross to take your sin and he rose again in order that you may be able to come into a true and living relationship with the God of all things. I would encourage you to explore that. And maybe even ask Jesus to reveal himself to you. You know, no, Jesus won't reveal himself in the same way that he did to these disciples but he is just as capable of making himself known to you. If you're a skeptic or, or someone who's just beginning to, to struggle with the reality of, of the presentation of the Bible about the resurrection, I encourage you to, to bring those prayers to God, to ask him to make himself known to you. And so that's how this passage helps us to believe. It shows us weak people who are confronted with the reality of the resurrection. But secondly, how does this passage help us to have life in his name? Well, again, that should have become really clear as we went through those points. It's reminded us how the resurrection enables a weak people to be used for the glory of God. And the reality is, as I said at the beginning, you may have identified with how one of these individuals or these individuals were feeling you may have been able to put yourself in their shoes. You know, you may be feeling grief at the moment. And I don't know your circumstances, church, but that grief may be deep. It may be an incredibly hard time. But let me remind you that because of the resurrection, we have access to the Father, to God himself, who cares for us and loves us in the same way that he cared and loved for Jesus. We have a savior who has conquered death so that even the worst thing in life, death, the grief over death, even that brings victory for believers as we enter into eternal life. Let me encourage you, if you're feeling grief at the moment, that because of the resurrection, you can bring those griefs to the father who cares. He will not turn you away, but he will comfort and care for you in the midst of those struggles. You see, just like Jesus who knew Mary's name, the Father knows your name and he knows your circumstances and he knows your pain. Those of you who follow Jesus, take your griefs to him. What a hope that that can give us that we have access to the Father. And you may be someone who's fearful at the moment. We saw this group of fearful disciples. And in this whole coronavirus time, may have left you feeling afraid. It may have uprooted some things that that have made you anxious and, and fearful. Well, be reminded from this passage that God, because of the resurrection of Jesus, has been able to give us the Holy Spirit who dwells within each one of us and that that Holy Spirit can comfort and care for us in the midst of our fear, who can give us boldness. You know, it's not up to you to muster up enough boldness. It's the Holy Spirit within you. So again, I encourage you to rest in your weakness, to allow the Holy Spirit to work through you, to pray to God through His Spirit, to give you boldness, to give you strength, to give you courage in this time. And you may be someone who's wrestling with your own unbelief. The areas in your heart that that still struggle to believe. You know, we all have that in our Christian life. Don't let anyone make you believe that we don't. We all have areas of unbelief. We all need to believe more in Jesus. But take courage from this passage that because of the resurrection, Jesus Jesus can confront our unbelief the most stubborn and dark areas in our life can be transformed because Jesus rose from the dead. Take comfort in that. Bring those hard places to God. So this is how this passage encourages us both to believe and to have life in his name. Church, the resurrection changes Everything, it it took a group of struggling people and enabled them to become the lights to a broken world. And he can do the same with you and with me. In the midst of our weaknesses, in our griefs, in our fear, in our unbelief, when we surrender to him, when we see the reality of the resurrection, when we see that we have a father who loves us and a spirit who dwells within us, He can work through us with his mighty power to help others come to believe and have life in his name. The resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for the realness of this passage. Lord, your word does not shy away from... The human experience, uh, we see in this passage uh, a man who's um, probably struggling with regret and, and um, guilt about denying you. We see uh, a woman who's in deep grief, a disciples who are fearful, and a man who refuses to believe. And yet, Lord, your resurrection completely changes everything for these people. Lord, we thank you so much that you really did rise from the dead and because of that resurrection you have brought us to the Father, that we can have access to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, that we have the same love that you had from God. Lord, thank you that you've equipped us with your Holy Spirit. You've given us your very presence to comfort and care and to encourage and to convict. And Lord, thank you that despite our continued weakness, Lord, despite those areas of our heart where we just wish it was different that you're actually able to confront that in a loving way lord i pray you help each and every one each and every person who's watching this to see more and more deeply the reality of the resurrection to more and more live in light of the fact that you have already won the victory on the cross by and by rising again from the dead Lord, help us. We need your help in this. I pray particularly for anyone who has never turned their lives over to you. That the reality of these claims today will help them to put their faith in you. That you will confront them. That you will make yourself known. Lord, we do commit this to you. And we thank you for this time in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much, church, and uh, I'll see you next time.